episode four, Age of Steam. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from western New York. If you haven't listened before, this podcast, How to Play, is a podcast about learning and teaching games. In this series, I'll explain how to play the game. You could use this as a tool for teaching yourself how to play the game, or learning the game as a group, or looking at your own teaching as a game teacher. So, I highly recommend, while you listen to this podcast, to have the Rust Belt map out in front of you. That's the map I'm going to be using for my instruction today. And also, it's very helpful to have one of these handy-dandy player aids that you can get over at BoardGameGeek. A couple of users over there, I believe that there's one under SnoozeFest is the man's name. And uh, I, I don't think that's his real name, but he created, um, or I believe he edited another user's excellent player aid. Uh, it has this lovely picture of a train on it. it, has all the phases of the game, the formula for victory points, all the tile types. It's really fantastic for people who are just learning the game. So get uh, several copies of that. So today I'm very excited because I get to teach you my favorite game of all time, Age of Steam. There's been a lot of talk about the Age of Steam family of games uh, recently around BoardGameGeek, and there's probably some confusion with all the different versions of the games. So I'm going to take just a minute to talk about the history of this series, and I'll tell you why I've chosen to focus this episode on the game Age of Steam. If you're not interested in that and you just want to get to learning how to play Age of Steam, just fast forward this until you hear that guitar intro. And that will start at about the nine and a half minute mark. If you're just looking to learn how to play the game, you just need the first three sections, part one, part two, and part three. Part three ends at about the 50-second minute mark. So um, the game explanation lasts about 40 minutes. So a quick history in the storied life of Age of Steam. Uh, Age of Steam was developed by designer Martin Wallace. It came out of a series of games he designed called the Early Railway series. And eventually he produced this game with the assistance of John Borer's company called Winsome Games. And they partnered together and released the original game in 2002. Then a little later on in 2005, Martin Wallace worked together with a company called Eagle Games. And they wanted to produce sort of a more friendly version, a little more schlockier version. It has all these cool, neato components. Um, it's also enormous. You need a table the size of France in order to play the game on. Um, and, and this version of the game was called Railroad Tycoon. Then a few years later, around I think about 2007, Martin Wallace decided that he wanted to rework Age of Steam into a new edition. He wanted to try to sort of streamline the system. And he talked to Mayfair Games about doing this. This course led to a now famous legal dispute between Martin Wallace and John Bohr, and there was an, an argument over the ownership of the name Age of Steam. Eventually Wallace withdrew his claim to the name Age of Steam, and he settled on the name Steam for his new updated version of the game. 
So uh, Martin Wallace and Mayfair put out this new version called Steam, while at about the same time, John Borer with Winsome re-released the original game Age of Steam through Fred Distribution. So now we have three games which are essentially the same system, yet when played they are very different games, Age of Steam, Steam, and Railroad Tycoon which, by the way, is of course no longer called Railroad Tycoon because more lawyers were involved when Eagle decided they wanted to print expansions and reprint Railroad Tycoon. Uh, they learned that they lost the rights to call it Railroad Tycoon um, because of the video game trademark. And so the name of that series, to add further confusion, with the new printing will be called Railways of the World. So actually we have Age of Steam, Steam, and Railways of the World. So, and there was a lot of, there was this huge discussion over there at Board Game Geek about um, John Bohr and Martin Wallace and, and all of the legal, the legal fighting that were taking place there. Uh, as a game player, I'm going to look at this from a very pragmatic view, and that is which game do I love the most and which game do I want to play? And having played all these versions of the game, the answer is Age of Steam. Having thought about doing an episode on Railroad Tycoon or Steam, because those systems are a little bit friendlier, and starting with that and then doing an additional episode on Age of Steam, I really didn't want to to confuse the issue and have to do two separate episodes. So I, I asked myself the question, if someone was interested in this series and they wanted to buy one of those three games, which one would I like them to buy and get interested in? I think the best game for gamers is Age of Steam. Now some of the other systems are a little nicer, a little more friendlier. Uh, because getting the money is not quite so challenging. You don't have to calculate everything at the beginning of the turn like you do in Age of Steam. But what's great about Age of Steam is the challenge of Age of Steam. Age of Steam is hard. Age of Steam hurts. But it hurts in a really good way. The mechanics of this game are challenging enough to simply eliminate you from the game on the very first turn if you make a bad decision. Age of Steam is an experience and challenge. When you lose Age of Steam, you can probably come up with a few reasons why you lost. And when you make that first dollar, you feel like you've accomplished a great task. And if you're fortunate enough to win, sometimes it can almost feel like a miracle. In the other quote-unquote more streamlined versions of this, Railroad Tycoon and Steam, they take away some of the risks from the game. They take away the threat of going bankrupt and the long climb of trying to turn that corner to finally making a profit and surviving the game through quality play. By taking that away, they took away one of the things that made Age of Steam such a great game in the first place. You have to struggle so hard to survive and then finally succeed. The other versions are good games. I do enjoy them, especially depending on the particular situation. If I'm with a group of players who want more of a nicer, less cutthroat game, then definitely I would be looking at pulling out Railroad Tycoon and Steam. And if you have the luxury of owning all three, I say go ahead and do that. But if you're going to learn just one game, if you're going to buy one of these three games, Age of Steam is the game. I could probably go on for hours preaching the greatness that is Age of Steam, but we have to get to the episode at some point, don't we? 
Let's hear about the complexity rating. Complexity rating. If you haven't figured this out by now, Age of Steam is a double black diamond. It's a double black diamond because it is a two to three hour game with a long lengthy rules explanation. And it's probably a game where you're gonna need to put two or three games of this in within a relatively short period of time in order to really learn the game. So you're gonna need you know, a group of, of four to five people who really want to put that sort of time into learning a game. If you have people who don't really like games, don't like hard games, don't like listening to rules for half an hour, don't like playing the same game twice, any of these things mean you should probably steer clear of it, unless you can deliver some sort of inspirational speech. This is a hard game, not only because of the complexity of the rules, but also because the consequences that mistakes can lead you to in this game. It is possible to go bankrupt uh, in the game of Age of Steam, and it's not unlikely in the first time you play this game. If you're playing it with some people who have played the game before, they're really going to help you ease along to make sure that you make it through that first game. And in the first or second game, you'll probably feel like you're just trying to tread water, keeping your business afloat. But this game is an investment. It's worth it. Every time you play it, you get a little bit better at it. It has this tremendous learning curve. I've played this game probably 50 times and every time I feel like I get a little bit better. Though it may be difficult for the first few games, I really hope you'll stick with it. This game is worth a hundredfold the investment in which you spend time learning it. And I hope this podcast can help you in understanding this great game. Part 1. The Hook what this game is about. Wow, did you hear that? A train drove by just as I was about to start my explanation. Isn't that fantastic? Well, if you could see me right now, you would see that I'm wearing my white and blue engineer hat. I'm all excited and geared up to teach you this game. We're going to play Age of Steam today. This is a railroad game, and it's a business game. Business is hard. You're starting a railroad business and trying to make money, but like starting any business, you have to go very deep into debt. And a big part of this game is going to be trying to crawl out of that debt and then trying to make a profit by the end of the game. In this game, you are delivering cubes. Look at this map. You'll see all sorts of colored cubes on the board. The cubes want to go to the color city that they are. So if you have a blue cube, say in Chicago, it wants to go to the city of Evansville, which is a blue city. And when it goes there, it's happy and you'll make money. In this game, we'll follow a sequence of actions and we'll do that for a certain number of turns. The sequence will be to issue shares to get money for your company. Then there'll be an auction for the order of play and to choose special actions. Each player will build track each player will move some of those cubes on the board. We'll then get paid, or we'll have to pay our expenses if we're in the hole. And then we'll put more goods on the board. We'll do that sequence about six or ten times, and then we're at the end of the game. To win the game, you'll get some points for building track, but the main chunk of points comes from the difference between your income level, which goes up when you deliver cubes, 
subtracted from your shares which you're issuing to get more money. So whoever has the largest gap between income and shares issued will most likely win the game. Part two, the meat. How do you play the game? So we're ready to go. Let's talk about what happens in a turn in more detail. If you have a player aid with the sequence of play in front of you, that would be great. If not, then just follow along with me. The first thing everyone's going to do is issue shares. This is the hard part, but it's also what makes Age of Steam great. At the beginning of your turn, you must make an informed decision about how much money you need for that turn. You're going to start with $10 and two shares. So you'll choose how, much, how many shares you want to issue. Each share you issue will give you five more dollars. A nice safe move for the first turn of your first game is to take two more shares. So to do that, you'll take your marker on the shares board, move it up two to where it says four shares, you now have four shares, and you'll take ten more dollars and you'll have a total of twenty dollars. What do you need money for? There's three major things you will need money for. We're going to have an auction to see the order of the turn, and then you'll build track. And at the end of the turn, especially for the first couple turns, you'll probably owe money. Let's look at that. The auction, you might spend between zero and five dollars. Uh, building track, uh, you might spend between six and ten dollars. And at the end of the turn, you'll probably owe um, you know, maybe three, four, five dollars. So having twenty dollars, that's going to be a nice safe amount to get you started. Once you issue a share, you can never pay back the share. So those markers will never move backwards and you can take at most 15 shares in the game. Keep in mind each share you take will cost you money in the money that you make each turn and will penalize you from your final score. But the hard part is if you don't take enough shares you will lose the game. Now we'll have an auction. We are bidding for two things. First of all just player order. The order in which players will build track and move goods on the board, which can be important. The second thing is choosing special actions. Underneath the goods chart you'll see several special actions listed. Whoever gets to go first gets first choice of these and when they take those no one else can take that action. So this can be critical in the game. I will explain more specifically what those special actions do later in the introduction. In the auction people will bid amounts of money until everyone else drops out and there's only one person left remaining. How this works is that as soon as the first person drops they will take last place in the turn order. The next people who drop will have to pay half of their bid as they drop out. The person who drops out last and second to last, as the person who's going to get to go first and second, have to pay their full bid. So sometimes it can be sort of a game of chicken to see who's going to drop first because these people know that they're going to have to pay everything that they bid. So here's an example of how an auction would work. Let's say I'm playing against my hated rivals Huey, Dewey, and Louie. I start the bidding. I start it with two dollars. Huey's up next. 
Huey bids three. Then Dewey goes. Dewey bids four. Louie doesn't want to bid five, so he drops out. Since he's the first to drop, he doesn't have to pay anything. He goes to fourth place in turn order, and then it's back to me. I either have to bid five or drop. I decide to drop, so I take third place, but since I wasn't last, I have to pay half my bid. Since I bid two, now I'm going to have to pay one. It goes to Huey. Huey decides he's really brave today and wants to go first, so he bids six. Dewey then decides to pass this round. He drops. He ends up taking second, but since he was uh, ended up in second, he's going to have to pay his full bid of four. Huey will pay his full bid of six, and Huey will get to go first. Darn you, Huey! After the auction, people make sure that they, they pay either nothing, half their bid, or their full bid. And then we're ready for selecting special actions. And then we are ready to move on to our next step, which is building track. The first player will have the first chance to build track. They can build up to three pieces of track on the board. They may start at any city that they would like and start building. Usually people use the straight or the curved track to connect one city to another. Keeping in mind you're trying to connect cubes of a color to cities of a specific color. So looking at the Rust Belt map, a person could build two tiles connecting the cities of Evansville and Cincinnati. Those are two blue cities in the middle of the board. Green regular track costs two dollars. So if they wanted to do that, that would be two four dollars total. Or if they wanted to, they could go through the town of Indianapolis, build one, two, three track. Building through a town costs one dollar plus one dollar for every exit from the town. So in order to build that piece of track, what you would do is you would take a straight piece and you'd put one of those gray discs on top of it to represent the circle that is Indianapolis. So the first one would be two for the curved track. Then through the town Indianapolis would be three dollars because it's one dollar for the town disc and one dollar for each exit. So generally when you build through towns it costs you three dollars. And then another piece. So that build would cost you seven dollars. Let's say someone already built the short two-tile from Evansville to Cincinnati, and you had to build along the river. Rivers cost $3 a piece. Also, you will see some mountainous tiles in the southeastern portion of the board, and mountain tiles cost $4. If you want to build through someone's track, you are allowed to do that. What I would need to do is use one of the crossing pieces of track. When I build through someone else's track, I must keep in mind that whatever they built there, I have to leave there. But I am allowed to build another stretch through that tile. So say for example, if someone had a straight going from the northeastern corner to the southwestern corner, I could leave that straight there and build a X piece, keeping that track there and building another piece of my track from the northwestern corner to the southeastern corner so that I could get through where I wanted to. Replacing track with complex crossing pieces, which is normally what you do, costs $3. Also, if you replace a piece that was crossing over a river, it doesn't cost any extra money to do that, as the person who initially built the track is considered to have dealt with that terrain feature already. Same thing with mountains.
You can also spend one of your track builds to redirect your track. Say for example you built a straight and then needed to change your mind and build a curve in a later turn. That would cost you one of your track builds and normally that just costs $2. Sometimes this happens if someone comes in and builds where you thought you were going to build. You have to next turn change your mind and go around them. You of course are not allowed to build across the large blue hexes. You can't build across Lake Erie or Lake Michigan. You're just going to have to go around those. It's also very important to note that there is no Y pieces, meaning that once all of the entrances into a city or town are blocked up, you will be out of luck. If you look at the southwestern corner of the board where the purple city Kansas City is, that particular city has only two ways to get in. Say those two tiles have already been used, there's now no other options for getting into that city. At the end of a turn you are allowed to leave hanging track, that is track that hasn't been finished being built to a town or a city. The only rule on doing that is you must continue that track each turn. So say you built three pieces of track to connect from St. Louis to Kansas City and you didn't quite get there. As long as next turn you finish that, or at least build one tile to continue building, you get to keep ownership of that track. If you do not build on that or cannot build on that, your ownership is removed from that piece of track immediately, and that track is open and free to anyone who would like to continue building upon that to claim ownership of it. So we go around in turn order, everyone builds up to three pieces of track, and now it is the moving goods phase. The moving goods phase actually has two rounds. You're going to get a chance to move up to two goods. So the first player is going to get a move a good, we'll go around in turn order, and then we'll go around a second time. And so just like I described earlier, say there was a blue cube in Cincinnati and you built that track to Evansville, you could move the cube from Cincinnati to Evansville. You would show the other players you were doing that. The cube comes off the board and goes back in the goods bag. You would get one income point for doing that. So we would look up at the income track and move your color one space. Hooray! Now if you just move up one space at a time, it's going to take a long time for you to make up your debt of all the money you've borrowed from people. You need to deliver for longer deliveries. How do you do that? Well say you set up that track, same one from Cincinnati to Evansville, using Indianapolis in between. One, two. Now you are going what's called two links or two cities or towns. It's going from Cincinnati to Indianapolis and Indianapolis to Evansville. So this is a two-point delivery. So if you did that, you would score two points on the income track. Yippee! Hold on there, bucko. Because if you don't have a two train, you can't make that delivery. What's a two train? I'm glad you asked. If you look over on the income track, you'll see in the middle you have an engine level. To start the game, you have a one-link train. It's a small little piddly train, and it can just go from one city to another. Now eventually, hopefully, you're going to develop so that you can go farther. If you increase that, now you can make a two-link delivery. This game allows you to go all the way up to a six-link train. Well, how do we make our trains better? 
in order to move up on the train scale, you're going to have to skip one of your goods movements. So we go around twice where you get to move a cube. So normally you can move two cubes in a turn. As an option, on one of those turns, instead you could say, I'd like to make my engine larger. No giggles. And so what you would do is you would take your chit and move it up to the level two. And now on your next round of goods, you could make that two link delivery and score two points. So the trick of this game is climbing that train scale as quickly as you can and being able to make those three or four or even six link deliveries before anybody else can. So you're going to be trying to set up a really nice network that you can move cubes a lot of cities. There's a few rules on moving cubes we need to talk about. Let's say you had track connecting St. Louis to Evansville to Cincinnati. There's a blue cube in St. Louis. If I move from St. Louis to Cincinnati, I'm not allowed to do that. Because Evansville is in the way, the cube must stop at the first legal city that it can stop at. Now this doesn't mean you have to go to the closest place. Say I was in that St. Louis spot, I had St. Louis to Evansville, and I had another piece of track that went from St. Louis to Springfield to Rock Island to Des Moines. So I can move that blue cube one, two, three points to Des Moines instead of just going one to Evansville. And that's what you want to do. You want to set up your deliveries so that they go as far as possible. You are also allowed to use other players track. Why would you want to do that? Well maybe it's your only way to make a good delivery that turn. Say for example you had a purple cube in Wheeling in the southeastern corner of the board and you had track that connected Wheeling to Cincinnati, to Evansville, to St. Louis. But you didn't get into Kansas City. One of your other players had Link connecting St. Louis to Kansas City. Now you don't have any other good delivery, but you do have that purple cube. So maybe you want to move that purple cube and you move it one, two, three links on your track and one link on your opponent's track. In this case, you would get to move up three spaces on the income track. Your opponent would get to go up one on the income track. Now, you're helping your opponent, but it also helped you. You gave yourself three points. So there are some times where you'll want to or have to use your opponent's track. We go around two times for people to move goods or to increase their engine. You may only increase your engine once in a turn. So if you have no deliveries, which is a situation you never want to find yourself in, you could increase your engine once, and the second time around, if you had no deliveries, you could pass. You almost never want to pass. So try to get yourself in a situation where you don't have to pass. In Age of Steam, the rules even allow you to move cubes on things that aren't even attached to you. Say, for example, someone had a cube they could move for one, or they can move for five. If you had no good move left and you wanted to be a particular jerk, you could move that cube and give them one that they were about to just move for five. Uh, keeping in mind you'd be passing one of your moves to do that, which in general you want to avoid at all costs. So to do well at this game, you're going to want to make as long a deliveries as soon as possible. The only time you want to move for one is on the first turn. You should always be looking for that next big delivery. On the first turn, you need to look for your first delivery, but you should also be looking, where am I going to get a two delivery or a three delivery on the next turn? 
And on the following turn, you're going to try to get that two or three delivery, but you're going to be looking in the next turn trying to think, how am I going to get that three or maybe even a four delivery? You want to try to set up for making those five or even six deliveries at the end of the game, because whoever makes the most of those is most likely going to win. So now is the collecting money and or paying expenses portion of the game. I like to roll this all into one when we're playing. Just figure out how much money you're making or how much money you're losing. It's pretty easy to do that. To do that, we look at the income track and see how much money you're making. Say, for example, you moved for two on the first turn. Your expenses are your shares plus your engine level. So say, for example, you started with four shares, like I recommended, and you ended the first turn with a two-link engine. Your expenses are four plus two, or six. You're going to owe six dollars. So you have a plus two income and a minus six expenses. So you have a net minus four. You owe four dollars. And here's where that extra cash comes in handy. You have that those extra dollars because we told you to keep those extra shares. Now, if you're playing a really tight, great game of Age of Steam, you want to end the turn with either zero money in your hand or maybe just one or two dollars, because that's showing that you're taking the minimum amount of shares necessary. Well, you'll get there eventually. For now, it's good to have that extra money in your hand. Because what happens if you can't pay your expenses? Bad, horrible things. The first thing that happens is you'll go backwards on the track. So say you were at that two, and you were $2 short, you would move back to the zero. So essentially, it's like you're going to start over next turn. Now, say you were at the two, and you had zero money left in your hand, and you were short $4. Then you would go back to the zero, and you would still owe money. You wouldn't have enough money, and you would go bankrupt and be eliminated from the game. This is most common on the first turn that someone would go bankrupt, but it could happen on the second turn. Usually once we get into the third or fourth turn, people have enough income that if they made a mistake and they're a dollar or two short, uh, they'll just slide back a space or two and everything will be okay. Now there gets that exciting point where you finally make money, and that really should be your first goal uh, when you're playing this game, is trying to make your company make money. How do you make money? When your income is greater than your shares plus your engine. So say for example you got your income up to 15, your shares was eight and your links was four. Uh, your income is plus 15, your expenses is eight plus four, which is negative 12. You made three dollars, hooray! And at that point, you're, you're getting three dollars. And so you might be able to slow down and take in more shares. Because the only way to get money in this game is to issue more shares at five dollars a piece, which hurts your standing in the game or to get your income level up high enough so that you're making enough money so that you can stop taking those shares. Now there's a funny little rule here called income reduction. And what that's showing is that as your co corporation gets larger, the overhead increases, and so your profit margin becomes less because it's more inefficient. Well, that's kind of just a clever way to slide in a catch-up mechanic here, and it's a pretty good catch-up mechanic. If you look at the income track, there are different colors when you get to breaks of 10. When you get to the 11, when you get to the 21, and when you get to the 31, there's different bars of color. And once you get to that point, you're going to start sliding back. Your income will slide back. So say you finish the turn at 13 income, at the end of the turn, you will slide back two. 
again if you were say at the 25 then you're going to slide back 4 since you're in the minus 4 section and if you're at 37 you'd slide back 6 etc what this allows is for someone who gets a little bit farther ahead it keeps them back with the rest of the pack this should give you a couple of clues towards gameplay and that is if you get to the edge of that income reduction line say you are moving goods it's better to stop on 10 than it is to stop on 11 because if you stop on 11 you'll slide back two spaces and another sneaky Canadian trick as I like to call it because of my Canadian buddies is if you have someone else on 10 say the leader is on 10 you could give them a point as I explained earlier to get them into that higher income reduction section so just be aware of that that's gonna slow down your income and keep you having to fight your way up the chart now it's time to produce goods how do we do that well there's dice rolling in this game believe it or not you're gonna take a number of dice equal to the number of players say there are four players you would take four dice and you'd roll those four dice you look on the goods chart you can see all the goods that are eventually maybe going to come onto the board each city has a number and color attached to it. If you look on the Rust Belt, they're arranged so that the cities on the west side of the board are called the white cities, and the cities on the east side of the board are called the black cities. That's because if you look in the number 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, they're in a white numbered box. You have to look at the box and not the number. Same thing for the black cities. So you'll roll the dice twice. You'll roll the dice the first time for the white cities. Let's say the roll came up one, three, three, four. So I would take the white one city, and I'd take the first cube there, the, the cube in the first box, and put it on the white one city, which happens to be Chicago. And then there were two threes, three, three. The white three city on the Rust Belt map is Kansas City. So I'd take the first and second cube there and plop it down. And then on the four, uh, white four, the white four city is Des Moines, so I take the top cube there and put it in that city. Then I do the exact same thing with the black cities. I'd re-roll re -roll the dice and put down any cubes for any uh, numbers that were rolled there. And this should give you a clue that, hey, I can see what cubes are coming up that are going to be on those cities on the map. Well, that might be a bit above your strategic planning for the first game or two, but as you get better at the game, you'll learn to look at that goods production chart and see what goods are coming out there and use that to plan your network. All right, finally, that's it. That's everything. Shares, auction, track, move goods, collect income or, or pay, income reduction, goods production, end of turn there's only one thing more thing to do and that is move the robber uh, the robber is the turn marker it looks like the robber from settlers of Catan at least the one does in my edition and so I always say move the robber and we do that six seven eight more times and the game is over now let's go back and look at those special actions that we skipped past earlier if you look at the bottom of the goods chart when someone wins the auction they're gonna get first pick of these so let's go over what they do in order from left to right the first one is first move and it's pretty self-explanatory you're gonna move goods first so we have the two rounds of moving goods let's say I'm playing with Huey Dewey and Louie and I normally go third 
if I take first move, then that's going to skip me in the turn order and move me up to first. So it's going to be myself and then Huey, Dewey, and Louie. And then I will go again. And then Huey, Dewey, and Louie will go again. Same thing with the first build action, which is next. If I was fourth, say, I took first build, for that particular phase, I'd get to build the track first, and then we'd go back to the normal order for the turn. The engineer. With this space, normally you only get to build three track. If you take this space, you get to build four track that turn instead. Now just make sure you have enough money to, when you take that spot. The next spot is locomotive. Locomotive lets you move your engine up. Normally you have to skip a good move in order to do that, but this is the other way to do that. If you take this action, you get to slide your engine level up one. Next is urbanization. Now you may have noticed these gray little town disks on the board or these gray little circles on the map. Those can grow up to be big adult cities. And how that happens is when someone takes this, then on their turn when they build track, they get to take the new city counters. There are one red, blue, yellow, and purple new city, and four black new cities. And they get to place that down in the town of their choice. You're going to place that in a place with either a gray town disc or a gray town circle. If there's track built there already, you would just pull that off and put that city there in its place. Now, you may notice that on most boards, this board and most boards, there are no black cities printed on the map. And that means any black cubes that are on the map are going to have to go to a black city. So until someone urbanizes a black city, those black cubes have nowhere to go, which is also why there are so many of them available for urbanization. Now, if there's four black cities, why would you choose C rather than G? Well, you're also going to want to pay attention to the production chart. If you look at those charts, those have goods that will hopefully get on those cities at some point. So you would look at those and decide which of those cubes is most beneficial to you. How do those cubes get on the map? Well, they get rolled on just like regular cities. And you look at the numbers directly below. For example, for Black City C, if you follow that column straight up, you'll see a 5 when we roll the white cities. So when we roll the white cities, if a 5 comes up, the first one comes off of C, just like the other ones. Uh, another example for the yellow city E, that comes up when if we roll for the black cities, if a 1 is rolled, a cube will go on black city 1, but a cube will also go on the black city E. The next special action is production. With production, right before we roll for goods on the board, you'll get to pull two random cubes out of the bag, look at what color they are, and put them down on the chart. And you actually get to skip the order, so if the first and second are gone from a city, you could put, say you had a red cube, you could put it right down on that first box, and so the next time it gets rolled, you can put that down. Now if a line is full, you're out of luck, so uh, you can only put it on empty spaces, which means this action is completely worthless on the first turn of the game. The last special action is turn order pass. What that allows you to do is gives you a free pass in the upcoming auction for player order. So say for example we get into the next auction, it's myself, my evil uh, opponents Huey, Dewey, and Louie. 
and I have turn order pass. Dewey bids five, and Louie doesn't have enough money, doesn't want to pay six, so he drops out, he goes to fourth, he goes to me. I say, I will execute my free turn order pass. And so that keeps me in the auction. And it goes over to Huey, and Huey doesn't want to pay money either. So he drops out. Now, you never have to outbid yourself. So Dewey doesn't have to outbid himself. It goes back to me, and if I want to try to take first, at this point I'm going to have to actually bid. But what I'll probably do is say pass and happily take second for free without having paid anything in the auction. And that's typically how that turn order pass. Though sometimes it, everyone can stay in the auction and not pass, and then uh, it, it doesn't really do anything. Another interesting thing about the turn order pass is you don't have to use it that first time. So say Dewey bid one and Louie bid two, and I had turn order pass, I could stick around and say, you know what, I'm going to bid three. And then um, Louie bids four and five and six, and now I can use my free turn order pass and stay in the auction at three. So that's an interesting rule that some people aren't aware of. As a novice to the game, it's critical to know the relative strengths of these actions. Uh, you know, uh, some players would say figure it out on your own, but by playing one or two games, you quickly learn that the most powerful actions, when you win an auction, there's one of two things you're usually looking to take, and that is the locomotive or the urbanization. The locomotive can be so strong to get a big jump on the other players to be moving goods, say you're moving for three and they're moving for two, that's going to give you an income jump, you're going to have to take less shares, and you're just going to be happier in general overall. So that locomotive is fiercely fought over. And a lot of times people need that urbanization as a, a place to deliver cubes to, or a, a place just for more cubes. The other bonus of the urbanization that people don't think about is it's almost like building four track because it's almost like a free track build and then you can build three more track. So those are usually the top two. Many of the other ones can be taken at any point. First move and first build can be really critical at certain junctures of the game. There can be that one cube that two people are really fighting over, in which case you'll really want that first move. Or there could be this one last entrance into a city in which first build becomes so important. Uh, the other ones can be useful to engineer, building four track can, can really help, and the turn order pass, getting second for free is can be just really great. Uh, you'll save yourself maybe a share and get a really good action. Uh, the one that's less used is the production, that adding two cubes to the chart it just really doesn't have to have a strong enough effect, and it, it's often not used at all. If it is used, people will typically use it near the end of the game to try to squeeze out another five or six point delivery. So those are all the special actions. Let's talk about how we figure out who the winner of the game is. There's a mathematical formula here to figure out victory points and the winner of the game. And here it is. You take your number on the income track, you subtract the number of shares you have, and you multiply that by three. And then you get basically one point for every piece of track you have on the board. So say for example, you had a finishing income of 37 and you had a ending shares of 12. So that would be 37 minus 12, which is 25. You take that number, times it by 3, you're going to get 75 victory points for that.
now you're going to get one point for each track on the board. The only exception to that is the track must be finished. It means all ending at a town or a city. If a link is unfinished, you don't get to count those towards your points. And you're also looking at each little chunk of track. So a normal straight or curved track is worth one point. A track coming in and out of a town will actually be worth two points because you get a point for each of those little segments that is coming out. So let's look back at our friends Cincinnati and Evansville. If you built that direct link, uh, that would be worth two points going straight towards those. If you went through Indianapolis, you would actually get four points. You get one, another one going into Indianapolis, another one going out of it, and one more. That would actually be worth four points. So keep that in mind. Going in and out of towns gives you a little bit extra points. So say I had something like 18 track on the board. I'd take the 75 plus the 18, and that would give me my final score of 93. It's hard to say what a typical winning score of is in this game. It really widely depends on the number of players and the map. Winning scores can be anywhere from 50 to even a little over 100. As we talked about when you first play this game, it's all about survival. So that's it. It's just that easy. The Railroad Baron with the most points wins. Have some time. Part three, the hamster. How do you win this game? Okay, so how are you doing after that? I know it's a lot of rules, but that's just the way it is. Are you ready for this? I could probably do a whole other episode on Age of Steam strategy, and at some point I might do that. But for now, I'll just try to give you a few more tips to help you survive and hopefully thrive in your first few games of Age of Steam. Tip number one, take enough shares. Count carefully at the beginning of the turn. Add up, all right, about how much track, how much am I going to spend about for the auction, and how much do I have to pay at the end of the turn. Take all that and add about three or four or five. Really play it safe when you first play this game. Eventually, you want to play it nice and tight. You know, we can tighten up your game as you get better, but to start with, take a couple extra dollars. Make sure to have that extra share because you'll get yourself in a situation where you'll say, ooh, if I only had two more dollars or three more dollars, I could do this. And you don't want to be in that situation. So it's okay to take that extra share. Tip number two, always build three track if possible on your turn. Reason for the, doing that is that, first of all, track is victory points. But more importantly, if you keep building track, you're gonna keep making your network better and you're gonna keep giving yourselves more chances to make large deliveries. You're gonna to head towards those cities with lots of cubes on top of them. Tip number three, think about longer deliveries as early as possible. As you're setting up your network, start thinking about, if you see, say in the corner, say down in Kansas City, there are three red cubes just sitting there. Nobody's near them, but you're near them. And you're thinking about, huh, what am I gonna do with those three red cubes? Be planning out how are those red cubes going to go four or five or maybe even six to give you a chance at winning. Tip number four, have a good network shape. What's a good network shape? 
Well, there's a couple different tricks you can do. You can do just a nice, straight, long line, uh, but that's not going to give you a lot of options. I like what I call a sort of a dog bone shape. You might have a nice long line, maybe going from Cincinnati to St. Louis. And then at the end of each of those lines, you have some spurs going out the ends. So maybe out of Cincinnati, you're going to Wheeling and Pittsburgh. And maybe from St. Louis, you're going from Des Moines and Kansas City. So that's going to give you a lot of different possibilities for your four or five or maybe even six routes. The other shape that's a really nice shape to try to work on is a big circle and maybe some spurs coming out of that circle. If you look at this uh, Rust Belt board, a circle you might make is a nice circle around Chicago and Evansville and St. Louis and Des Moines, and then maybe spur out from there, because that's going to give you some good possibilities for making long deliveries. Number five, don't make a rainbow chain of colors. If you make a straight chain of colors going purple, blue, red, yellow, black, and connect all five of those in a row, you're going to have very little opportunity for making long deliveries. It's often good to have a couple repeats in the middle, like uh, say purple, blue, red, 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 yellow, black, and that's going to give you a lot more chances to make those longer purple or black or yellow deliveries through all those red cities. Because if you have that rainbow chain, you're going to stop a lot of them right in the middle. Tip number six, don't fall behind in the locomotive race. If everybody else is at five with their engine level and you're at two or three, you have a serious problem because they're going up four or five at a time while you're going up two or three at a time. You want to skip some of those good deliveries early to get up to that three and four very quickly. And at some point, you want to win the auction and take locomotive at least once or twice to give you a jump on that locomotive race to keep you at par with the other players. Tip number seven, I'm going to call this the ROB. Don't get yourself in a situation where you absolutely have to have something. This can happen in a variety of ways, uh, but most commonly it happens where you, you take your shares and you set up your plan so you have to have locomotive or you have to have urbanization. And if you don't get one of those things, your whole plan is just going to crush and you're not going to move for any goods and you'll probably be crying in tears at your seat. This is a bad thing to do. Have two possibilities in mind for when you go into an auction or when you go into a turn. A similar situation can happen with uh, moving goods or with building track. Think about, if I don't get this, what's the backup plan? Have backup plans. Don't rely on just one plan because everybody else can see that cube or see that entrance into that city and it's very likely that they'll take build first uh, or move first and do that thing before you do. And that's the great thing about Age of Steam. You always want to go first and you always want to do all those actions, but you have to mitigate what you can and, and just make the best decision possible in your situation. And lastly, have fun. If you're playing your first game of Age of Steam, don't take the game too seriously. You're not going to be an expert the first time. You'll probably struggle and it will be difficult that first time, but just take a light-hearted attitude to, towards it, and soon enough you'll be an expert at connecting that track and moving those cubes. But with each game, you'll make progress and you'll become more adept at living the wild life of a railroad tycoon.
hello, hello. I'm, I'm, I'm the Mellows. Yes, I'm not. I'm just a podcaster. But okay, all right. I'm sorry. I mean, a person who runs a railroad, uh, railroad business during the age of. Yes, what? I'm not allowed to use that either. Okay, I see. I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, trains. I hope you have a great time learning and playing my favorite game, Age of Steam. Part four, footnotes. All right, so here in the footnotes section, I had to get into a little bit about just the Age of Steam system. The great thing about Age of Steam is that once you learn it, you don't know just one game. You know 20, 30, 40, even 50 games. Because every month or so, someone comes up with another great map for Age of Steam. and Each map makes the game experience a little bit different. Some of them change some of the special actions. The geography of each map definitely changes the things that you do. And each map usually comes with one or two rule twists that makes the game just a little bit different than you're used to. Now the thing about Age of Steam is you really want a proper number of players for the map that you're playing. If you're playing a map with not enough players, the game will be too easy and you won't really get that full Age of Steam experience. Normally I find this with, with three players, just in general. Playing with three makes the board a little too open. Unless you have a really tight, specific map, it generally is not going to work. So there's a lot of resources out there for you to look at regarding which map to use with which number of players. I really recommend some of the spreadsheets that are available as files there um, at, at BoardGameGeek. I like to sort them by player number and, and see what which ones there are available. I'll just give you some recommendations of some of the maps I've tried out. I've probably played, I'd say, at least 20 maps. Um, if you're just starting out, the Rust Belt is a fantastic map. And even as an expert, when you go back to it, that starting map, you could just play that map and, and have a lot of fun uh, exploring it because it continues to be different based on the actions of the players. Another great beginner map is the France map. I still think that's relatively still available. And that has a special rule that allows players to take shares whenever they want, but they only get $3 for them. This is a really neat rule that could be implemented in any map. Um, in fact, you, you might want to implement that rule in the Rust Belt map. There are one-player and two-player maps, uh, and I've tried them out, and I'm not really a big fan. Uh, Age of Steam, I really feel like to get that full Age of Steam experience, you need to have a few more players. Three-player maps, there are some, some good ones. The Ireland map is fantastic, but it's also very hard to find. There's a print-and-play map called Japan, which is a pretty good map, uh, especially for the price. You just need to print it out. And I know there's a, a map called Montreal, which I've heard good things about, um, which is available for just three players. Now, four and five players, I think, where Age of Steam really shines. My favorite four-player maps, uh, I really like Northern California, London. Uh, the Moon and Mars maps are both really a lot of fun. They're a little bit different. 
and China is is very challenging. I really like the Steam Brothers maps. Uh, they've put out a lot of maps that are especially good at those top ends of five and even six players. Uh, some good five player maps. South Africa, South America, they have these four map sets. They're a little bit expensive, but I, I think they're worth it. Go ahead and invest in, in a set of those. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Uh, some of their other maps, which are actually good for six, uh, Mexico and India are large enough that, that six players could get around. But pretty much any map that you try with six players is really going to be a dogfight because those uh, building areas are going to build up real quick and those cubes are going to disappear faster than you know it. One thing we did here in our area is we started a little league. Uh, we, we kept teaching more and more people, and now we have a group of, say, eight to ten people who know the game and, and enjoy playing the game. And so we don't have to go through those learning games as much anymore. And we started a league because there's so many maps we wanted to play, and we really enjoy playing the game. And uh, basically all the, all the league is is a, a tracking mechanism for how players are doing. And when we play a game, we, uh, you get points based on your relative standing in the game. And it's based on a 0 to 20 point scale. If you are first, you're going to get 20 points. If you are last, you're going to get 0 points. And the other players are going to get somewhere in between. So the four player is first place gets 20, second place gets 13, third place gets 7, and fourth place gets 0 and so on. In a five-player game, we have it uh, set up so that the point spread is a little bit different. And we take your combined total score and you average it by the total number of games, and that gives you a relative standing uh, as opposed to the other players. We've had some fun with getting other statistics in there as well. My buddy Rob from Canada, who I alluded to earlier, set that up. So if you're interested in doing something like that, contact us and we can definitely help you out with that. It's certainly been a lot of fun. I feel like a lot of times in our gaming groups we get so caught up in playing the next thing that we don't focus on one particular game and really try to become experts at that game. And we've had a lot of fun trying to get better at Age of Steam. And hopefully you will too. So that's it. I hope you were able to benefit from this episode. I hope you either were able to learn Age of Steam, learn how to teach Age of Steam, or get a whole bunch of guys to uh, learn this great game. This completes the first batch of episodes I'm doing for this series, uh, culminating in being able to do this episode on my favorite game. Who knows, it could be the end of the series. It sort of depends on how this series is received. I'd really like to get some feedback on what you thought of these initial episodes of this series. I have created a guild for this podcast called the How to Play Guild that you can join up uh, at Board Game Geek. You can comment on individual episodes and give me feedback. I'd really like to hear about what you liked, what you didn't like, if there's anything you want changed about the format, um, if there's other particular games you'd really like to hear covered in future episodes. Maybe you just can't stand those corny guitar segues. You want me to take those out? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure where this is going f right now. I know it's a, a lot of time and effort for me. I spend about four to six hours per episode putting these initial episodes together. So it is, it is quite a bit of work, but if, you know, if it's going well and people are enjoying it, then I'm happy to keep on plugging away at them. So if you're interested in sponsoring or, or hosting this show, please let me know. So I'm signing out for now. 
Thank you so much for listening. This is Ryan Sturm for How to Play.